This afternoon, our text comes from Lord's Day 34. Um, before we open that, we are going to read a couple passages from the Bible. And the first is going to be from Genesis chapter 34, and we're going to read the verses 1 through 4. Um, Genesis 34, page 38 in the Pew Bibles. Sorry, Genesis 35. And it says... Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has gone with me, in the way which, which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the tabernacle tree which was in Shechem. And the second place we're going to read is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, uh, the verses 6 through 18. And you can find that on page 868. The Lord also said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree and has played the harlot. And I said, After she has done all these things, return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Then I I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, and she went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all her treacherousness, her sis, all her treacherous sister Judah had not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, Backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am faithful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds according to my heart, who will feed you with my knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass, when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord It will not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No no more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north, to the land I have given 
as an inheritance to your fathers. And then the last place, yeah, we'll turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, and we are on Lord's Day 34. And this page 550 in the psalm book. Starting at question uh, 92, what is the law of the Lord? And follows the words which we were um, presented this morning. And then question and answer 93, how are these commandments divided into two parts? The first teaches us to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? that for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, superstition, and prayers to saints or other creatures. Further, that I rightly come to know the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, accept all good from him alone only, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I forsake all creatures rather than do the least thing against his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. This afternoon's sermon that I'm about to read has been prepared by Dr. DeVisser, and after the sermon, we will sing in response from Psalm 135, stanza 10. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we pay attention to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It is the first commandment, it is also the most foundational commandment. All the other commandments flow from this one. To begin with, I want to draw your attention to a remarkable comment in the Catechism. Did you notice these words in answer 94? that for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid all idolatry, etc. As I was studying the Catechism, it struck me that the original versions say it even more strongly, as much as I care about the salvation of my soul. I'll repeat that, as much as I care about the salvation of my soul. In other words, as we reflect on this commandment, we need to realize that our eternal destination is at stake. The Bible is very clear that death is not the end of human existence. The world outside may be telling you a different thing, but the Bible tells us that after death comes judgment. So we need to watch how we live. The Lord Jesus himself spoke these words. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? In Matthew 16, verse 27. It is possible indeed to forfeit your soul, and serving idols would be an easy way to do that. With this in mind, let us turn our attention to the first commandment. This afternoon's sermon has this theme, serving God and Him only in a world full of idolatry. We're going to look at two items this afternoon. The first is the lure of serving idols, and the second, the reward of serving God. So in the first place, the lure of serving idols. Idolatry sounds like an old-fashioned word, 
The whole concept of idols sounds like something from ancient times, perhaps 2,000 years ago, when people were serving idols in temples and in their own homes. Think, for example, of the Apostle Paul walking around the city of Athens and how he's disturbed because the city was full of idols. It's easiest It's easy for us to think that since we do not have idols in streets and market squares, idolatry is a thing of the past. But make no mistake, even in our world, there are millions of people who serve idols, visible idols, tangible idols. I remember visiting a Hindu temple in Mississauga with some seminary students some years ago. Lots of idols, big ones, small ones. It was striking to see people coming in with jars of milk, pouring milk in, or on the idols, bowing down to them, trusting that somehow this would cause gods to bless them with good fortune. The Bible gives us many examples of how God's own people were always drawn to serving idols. In Jeremiah 3, we heard the Lord's complaint of his people because they committed adultery under every high hill and under every green tree. Perhaps even more striking is what we read about Jacob's family in Genesis 35. When Jacob led his wives and his children back to Bethel, he said to his household, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Just think about that. Here we have Jacob, the chosen one, the father of God's people. Apparently, there were foreign gods in his own family, and he, or this had been going on for years. We know that Rachel, Jacob's wife, had idols in her tent, but obviously she wasn't the only one. Thankfully, Jacob came to a point where he took firm action, and got rid of the idols in his family. Let's hope that Christian fathers today can have that same courage and determination to take action when they see that there is idolatry in their family. Remember, salvation is at stake. What might idolatry look like today? We don't have idols, visible, tangible tangible idols in our homes, but that does not mean we are immune to idolatry. We may not have visible idols before which we bow down to, but we have functional idols. And if you look at our functional idols, you will find that they are very similar to the idols of the Greeks and Romans and the Hindus. The Greeks and the Romans had a goddess of love. They brought sacrifices to her in the hope that they would have physical beauty and a good sex life. Isn't that what so many people are after today? The Greeks and Hindus had gods of prosperity. Their driving force behind serving those idols was to become successful, rich, affluent, and isn't that what drives so many people today? Various authors have written books about idols in our age, the 21st century. Tim Keller, for example, has written a book called Counterfeit Gods, in which he describes the three big idols in our time, money, sex, and power. Let me say a few words about each of those. First, money. The idea that if I had a boatload of money, I would be happy. I would drive an expensive car, have a dream home, and I can buy anything I want and go anywhere I want, and people would stand in awe of me. That would make me so happy. So I need to become rich. The Bible would say you are serving Mammon, the god of money. But after you have served him your whole life, you will find out that Mammon does not give you true happiness. He will make you miserable. The second one is sex. The idea that I would be completely happy if I was attractive and always successful with women, or if I was a woman, I would want to be a gorgeous woman that every man would like to date. 
The idea that in order to be really happy, I need to experience heavenly sex and that I need to find a partner who would give me all that glorious feeling, or if I can't have it with a real person, I can find it online with pornography, you spend hours and hours chasing that idol. You spend loads of money on our bodies trying to be as attractive as possible. You are doing what the Greeks and the Romans did, serving Venus, the goddess of love. But after you served her with all your might, you find out that Venus does not give you true happiness. She will leave you behind miserable and lonely, having lost your soul. And the third one is power. The idea that you would be completely happy if I was a man of influence, successful, highly respected, or if I was a woman with a career. Or if I can't have it, you think, well, I want to make sure that my children have a perfect life. So you put all your money and energy into making sure that your children have the best possible education and training and everything else. Power and success can be an idol. The Bible alludes to this as men whose might, sorry, men whose own might is their God, in Habakkuk 1, verse 11. This is also a pitfall for ministers and professors as well, that your reputation, the desire to be seen as one of the best preachers or a popular conference speaker. Money, sex, and power, the three idols of our time, and probably the most common idols of all time. Now, money, sex, and power are not wrong in themselves. When the Lord allows you to to enjoy success in what you do, that is a beautiful thing. When the Lord gives you an opportunity to enjoy sexuality within a marriage relationship, it is a beautiful thing. And when the Lord blesses you with good income and possessions, that is a beautiful thing. But when these things become idols, when we start to serve them and make all kinds of sacrifices to achieve them, and when we put our own trust in them, that is when we put our salvation at risk. Remember what the Catechism says, that for the sake of my very salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, witchcraft, etc. My salvation is at stake. Not because an idol is something, as the Apostle Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 8, an idol is nothing. It has real no existence. But then he goes on to warn us in chapter 10 that there is something very sinister behind it. An idol as such is nothing, but there is another reality. Behind the idol, there are demons. The pagans who bring sacrifices to their idols are serving God, are demons and not our God. So we need to watch ourselves. And when the world says, Serve the God of money and you will be happy. You must realize that this is a message from Satan. He wants to draw you away from God and destroy you. And the world says, serve the God of sex and you will experience heaven. Do not believe it. Ultimately, it is a message from Satan. He is telling you lies. And if you follow him, you will be left empty, disappointed, and having lost your soul. There is only one true God. He is good. And he wants to bless us, but he also requires to trust him and him only for his blessings. And this leads us to our second point. And the second point is the reward of serving God. We come to the positive side. If we want to avoid and flee idolatry, what do we need to pursue positively? In answer 94, the second part calls us to rightly come to know 
the only true God, trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good to come from him, and to love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. And I want to draw attention to these words, expect all good from him only. There are two aspects here. First, that we, can, that, that we may expect all good from him. And second, that we may expect all good from him only, exclusively. In Jeremiah 3, our, our scripture reading, it teaches us some important truths about this connection. It is a wonderful testimony about both these aspects, the goodness of the Lord and the exclusive allegiance in which he demands. The passage starts with the Lord's complaint against Israel and Judah. Both kingdoms had been unfaithful to him. The people of Israel served other gods on every high hill and on, under every green tree. And the Lord did not mince these, world, these words. Israel played the whore. Therefore he sent her away into exile. And her younger sister Judah saw this, but then she did the very same thing. The people of Israel also played the whore by serving foreign gods. After such damning allegations, you would expect the Lord to curse his people and get rid of them forever. But then comes a surprise in verse 12. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. And then follow some wonderful promises. The Lord will restore his people. Bring them back to the promised land. Give them shepherds after his own heart. And gather the nations to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And it ends with this remarkable promise. They shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Brothers and sisters, this is our God. That we may expect all good from him. He is merciful and gracious. Quick to forgive and eager to bless his people. Because God is love. But his love is also exclusive. He wants to give us everything, but then he wants us to expect everything from him only and no one else besides him. And the most unexpected and beautiful aspect is that God works in the hearts of his people to cause them to repent and to turn their hearts around to serving him. Let's go back to Jacob one more time from Genesis 35. Jacob gives a wonderful testimony about the, uh, the Lord's goodness. Have you noticed? When Jacob called his household to put away their foreign gods and serve God only, he said the following about God, Let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make an altar there to the Lord, who answers me in the day of distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. That is the difference between idols and God. Idols are useless when you are in trouble. But God answers in the day of distress. And as Jacob says, he is present. He has been with me wherever I went. It is also quite the contrast. You can also find it in Isaiah 46. If you serve idols, you will have to carry them around. They will leave you helpless and exhausted. And if you serve God, he will actually carry you all the days of your life. Now that we have come this far, brothers and sisters, we need to do some self-examination. We should not deceive ourselves. We are prone to serving idols. Serving idols is something that is easy for us to do because our hearts are sinful and we are easily seduced by the lure of idols. 
There's a famous saying by Calvin, which you've probably heard before. The human heart is an idol factory. The Apostle John ends his first letter with these words. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's 1 John 5, verse 21. I'm not sure which question to ask. I could ask, do you serve idols in your life? But perhaps I should assume that we all have idols in our life. And then I should ask, how do we find them? And, how, and what are we going to do about them? In the book by Keller that I mentioned earlier, he mentions a number of things that you can do to discern the idols in your life. First, look at your imagination. In other words, where do your thoughts go effortlessly when there is nothing else demanding your attention? What do you enjoy daydreaming about? Are you thinking about scenarios of how you can advance your career? Are you fantasizing about a relationship with a particular person? If that is what is happening in your mind, then you have an idol. Second, look at how you spend your money. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever you love most, you will spend money on most easily. Why is it that we tend to overspend on clothing or luxury items or status symbols such as houses and cars? Why is it that we have such a difficult time supporting the church financially? Why is it that Consistory had to send a letter to all of us addressing the problem that our financial contributions to the church is below par? It says something about the idols in our lives. Repentance is needed. Third, look at how you deal with disappointment. Maybe your career didn't work out the way that you hoped for. Maybe there was a medical issue that became a burden. Maybe you had been, become the victim of bullying or abuse. Maybe you were locked up in a difficult marriage, or maybe your relationship fell apart. Can you still say with Jacob, God has always answered me in the day of my distress? I hope so, and I know many of you do. And this is a sign that you trust God and look up to him for everything that you need. But what if you respond with bitterness and anger like Jonah who said, just take my life for me for it is easier for me to die than to live. If this is the way that you respond, you have found your idol. One additional way to discern, how is your prayer life? If it is the case that you expect all good from God only, as the catechism says, that, you surely will, that will surely show itself in your prayers. You will be bringing all your petitions and requests and thanksgiving to him. And this simply takes time and commitment. Let me ask the younger generation that's here today. What is the first thing that you do in the morning? Is it scrolling through your phones or is it praying to God? What is the last thing you do before you go to bed at night? Why is it that scrolling our phones seems so easy, but spending time in prayer can seem so hard? I'm not suggesting that scrolling our phones is sinful. I'm simply asking to consider the implications of answer 94. Let us do that one more time. In the first commandment, the Lord requires that I rightly come to know the one true God, to trust in him alone, submit to him with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only, and love, fear, and honor him with my whole heart. So if you think this through, it will have to have an impact on our whole life, including our prayer life and our private moments. Maybe someone will say, this is 
simply asking too much of me. I'm too messed up, and my life is a mess already. This is who I am, and what I have become, and I can't change anymore. If this is what you think, then let me say three things. First, remember the example of Jacob. After being soft on the idols in his family for many years, and allowing his wife Rachel and others to have idols in their tents, he finally came to a point where he took action and said, come people, we need to serve God only because he has always been there when I needed him. So bring your idols so we can bury them under a tree. And in other words, repentance is possible. It can be done. Remember the sermon we recently heard on Lord's Day 33 on repentance with the beautiful description of new life. It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the, the will of God in all good works. Second, remember that the Lord is merciful and gracious. Jeremiah 3. Return to me, O faithless people, the Lord said, for I am merciful, and I will not be angry forever. Last week when we celebrated the Lord's Supper, we were reminded of how merciful the Lord is. Bread and wine pointing to the body and blood of Jesus Christ are symbols of forgiveness of sins. Remember Psalm 51, a broken spirit God will not despise when humbly as a sacrifice presented. And third, we don't have to do this on our own strength. Remember the sermon we heard recently on Lord's Day 32, where we confess that Jesus Christ renews us by his Holy Spirit to be in his image. Jesus did not, die for, did not just die for our sins. He also works in our lives to renew us into his image. So when, that, when you feel that you are too weak to change your life and get rid of the idols in your life, pray to God, Lord, please work in me that which is pleasing in your sight, and he will do it. In closing, let's connect back to the beginning of the sermon. Our salvation is at stake. Why would you serve idols that leads to your destruction? Why would you turn away from the merciful God who saves us, even giving us his own son for our salvation, and who promises to be our good shepherd for this life and into the next? Amen.